of Human Bondage by William Somerset Maugham. Chapter 49, Segment 1 The story which Philip made out, in one way and another, was terrible. One of the grievances of the women's students was that Fanny Price would never share their gay meals in restaurants, and the reason was obvious. She had been oppressed by dire poverty. He remembered the luncheon they had eaten together when first he came to Paris, and the ghoulish appetite which had disgusted him. He realized now that she ate in that manner because she was ravenous. The concierge told him what her food had consisted of. A bottle of milk was left for her every day, and she brought in her own loaf of bread. She ate half the loaf and drank half the milk at midday when she came back from the school, and consumed the rest in the evening. It was the same day after day. Philip thought with anguish of what she must have endured. She had never given anyone to understand that she was poorer than the rest, but it was clear that her money had been coming to an end, and at last she could not afford to come any more to the studio. The little room was almost bare of furniture, and there were no other clothes than the shabby brown dress she always wore. Philip searched among her things for the address of some friend with whom he could communicate. He found a piece of paper on which his own name was written a score of times. It gave him a peculiar shock. He supposed it was true that she had loved him. He thought of the emaciated body and the brown dress hanging from the nail in the ceiling, and he shuddered. But if she had cared for him, why did she not let him help her? He would so gladly have done all he could. He felt remorseful because he had refused to see that she looked upon him with any particular feeling. And now these words in her letter were infinitely pathetic. I can't bear the thought that anyone else should touch me. She had died of starvation. Philip found at length a letter signed, Your loving brother, Albert. It was two or three weeks old dated from some road in Surbiton, and refused a loan of five pounds. The writer had his wife and family to think of. He didn't feel justified in lending money, and his advice was that Fanny should come back to London and try to get a situation. Philip telegraphed to Albert Price, and in a little while an answer came. Deeply distressed. Very awkward to leave my business. Is presence essential? Price. Philip wired a succinct affirmative, and next morning a stranger presented himself at the studio. My name's Price, he said, when Philip opened the door. He was a commonish man in black, with the band round his bowler hat. He had something of Fanny's clumsy look. He wore a stubbly mustache and had a cockney accent. Philip asked him to come in. He cast sidelong glances round the studio, while Philip gave him details of the accident and told him what he had done. "'I needn't see her, need I?' asked Albert Price. "'My nerves aren't very strong, and it takes very little to upset me.' He began to talk freely. He was a rubber merchant, and he had a wife and three children." Fanny was a governess, and he couldn't make out why she hadn't stuck to that instead of coming to Paris. Me and Mrs. Price told her Paris was no place for a girl, and there's no money in art. Never has been. It was plain enough that he had not been on friendly terms with his sister, 
and he resented her suicide as a last injury that she had done him. He did not like the idea that she had been forced to it by poverty. That seemed to reflect on the family. The idea struck him that possibly there was a more respectable reason for her act. I suppose she hadn't any trouble with a man, had she? You know what I mean, Paris and all that. She might have done it so as not to disgrace herself. Philip felt himself reddening and cursed his weakness. Price's keen little eye seemed to suspect him of an intrigue. I believe your sister to have been perfectly virtuous, he answered acidly. She killed herself because she was starving. End of segment one. Chapter 49, Segment 2 Well, it's very odd on her family, Mr. Carey. She only had to write to me. I wouldn't have let my sister want. Philip had found the brother's address only by reading the letter in which he refused alone. But he shrugged his shoulders. There was no use in recrimination. He hated the little man and wanted to have done with him as soon as possible. Albert Price also wished to get through the necessary business quickly so that he could get back to London. They went to the tiny room in which poor Fanny had lived. Albert Price looked at the pictures and the furniture. I don't pretend to know much about art, he said. I suppose these pictures would fetch something, would they? Nothing, said Philip. The furniture's not worth ten shillings. Albert Price knew no French, and Philip had to do everything. It seemed that it was an interminable process to get the poor body safely hidden away underground. Papers had to be obtained in one place and signed in another. Officials had to be seen. For three days Philip was occupied from morning till night. At last he and Albert Price followed the hearse to the cemetery at Montparnasse. I want to do the decent thing, said Albert Price, but there's no use wasting money. The short ceremony was infinitely dreadful in the cold, gray morning. Half a dozen people who had worked with Fanny Price at the studio came to the funeral. Mrs. Otter, because she was the Mazier and thought it was her duty. Ruth Chalice, because she had a kind heart. Lawson, Clutton, and Flanagan. They had all disliked her during her life. Philip, looking across the cemetery, crowded on all sides with monuments, some poor and simple, others vulgar, pretentious and ugly, shuddered. It was horribly sordid. When they came out, Albert Price asked Philip to lunch with him. Philip loathed him now, and he was tired. He had not been sleeping well, for he dreamed constantly of Fanny Price in the torn brown dress hanging from the nail in the ceiling, but he could not think of an excuse. You take me somewhere where we can get a regular slap-up lunch. All this is the very worst thing for my nerves. Lavenue's is about the best place round here, answered Philip. Albert Price settled himself on a velvet seat with a sigh of relief. He ordered a substantial luncheon and a bottle of wine. Well, I'm glad that's over, he said. He threw out a few artful questions, 
and Philip discovered that he was eager to hear about the painter's life in Paris. He represented it to himself as deplorable, but he was anxious for details of the orgies which his fancy suggested to him. With sly winks and discreet sniggering, he conveyed that he knew very well that there was a great deal more than Philip confessed. He was a man of the world, and he knew a thing or two. He asked Philip whether he had ever been to any of those places in Montmartre which are celebrated from Temple Bar to the Royal Exchange. He would like to say he had been to the Moulin Rouge. The luncheon was very good, and the wine excellent. Albert Price expanded as the processes of digestion went satisfactorily forwards. "'Let's have a little brandy,' he said when the coffee was brought, "'and blow the expense.' He rubbed his hands. "'You know, I've got half a mind to stay overnight and go back tomorrow. "'What do you say to spending the evening together?' "'If you mean you want me to take you round Montmartre tonight, "'I'll see you damned,' said Philip. "'I suppose it wouldn't be quite the thing.' "'The answer was made so seriously that Philip was tickled. "'Besides, it would be rotten for your nerves,' he said gravely. "'End of segment two. Chapter 49, Segment 3 Albert Price concluded that he had better go back to London by the four o'clock train, and presently he took leave of Philip. "'Well, good-bye, old man,' he said. "'I tell you what, I'll try and come over to Paris again one of these days, and I'll look you up, and then we won't aft go on the razzle.' Philip was too restless to work that afternoon, so he jumped on a bus and crossed the river to see whether there were any pictures on view at Duran Ruel's. After that, he strolled along the boulevard. It was cold and windswept. People hurried by, wrapped up in their coats, shrunk together in an effort to keep out of the cold, and their faces were pinched and careworn. It was icy underground in the cemetery at Montparnasse, among all those white tombstones. Philip felt lonely in the world and strangely homesick. He wanted company. At that hour, Cronshaw would be working, and Clutton never welcomed visitors. Lawson was painting another portrait of Ruth Callis and would not care to be disturbed. He made up his mind to go and see Flanagan. He found him painting but delighted to throw up his work and talk. The studio was comfortable, for the American had more money than most of them, and warm. Flanagan set about making tea. Philip looked at the two heads that he was sending to the salon. "'It's awful cheek, my sending anything,' said Flanagan. "'But I don't care. I'm going to send. "'Do you think they're rotten?' "'Not so rotten as I should have expected,' said Philip. "'They showed, in fact, an astounding cleverness. "'The difficulties had been avoided with skill, "'and there was a dash about the way in which the paint was put on "'which was surprising and even attractive.' Flanagan, without knowledge or technique, painted with the loose brush of a man who had spent a lifetime in the practice of the art. If one were forbidden to look at any picture for more than thirty seconds, you'd be a great master, Flanagan, smiled Philip. These young people were not in the habit of spoiling one another with excessive flattery. 
We haven't got time in America to spend more than 30 seconds in looking at any picture, laughed the other. End of segment three. Chapter 49, Segment 4 Flanagan, though he was the most scatterbrained person in the world, had a tenderness of heart which was unexpected and charming. Whenever anyone was ill, he installed himself as sick nurse. His gaiety was better than any medicine. Like many of his countrymen, he had not the English dread of sentimentality which keeps so tight a hold on emotion, and, finding nothing absurd in the show of feeling, could offer an exuberant sympathy which was often grateful to his friends in distress. He saw that Philip was depressed by what he had gone through and, with unaffected kindliness, set himself boisterously to cheer him up. He exaggerated the Americanisms which he knew always made the Englishman laugh and poured out a breathless stream of conversation, whimsical, high-spirited, and jolly. In due course they went out to dinner, and afterwards to the gate Montparnasse, which was Flanagan's favorite place of amusement. By the end of the evening he was in his most extravagant humor. He had drunk a good deal, but any inebriety from which he suffered was due much more to his own vivacity than to alcohol. He proposed that they should go to the Balboulier, and Philip, feeling too tired to go to bed, willingly enough consented. They sat down at a table on the platform at the side, raised a little from the level of the floor so that they could watch the dancing, and drank a bock. Presently Flanagan saw a friend, and with a wild shout leaped over the barrier onto the space where they were dancing. Philip watched the people. Boulier was not the resort of fashion. It was a Thursday night, and the place was crowded. There was a number of students on the various faculties, but most of the men were clerks or assistants in shops. They wore their everyday clothes, ready-made tweeds, or queer-tailored, and their hats, for they had brought them in with them, and when they danced there was no place to put them but on their heads. Some of the women looked like servant girls, and some were painted hussies, but for the most part they were shop girls. They were poorly dressed in cheap imitation of the fashions on the other side of the river. The hussies got up to resemble the music hall artiste, or the dancer who enjoyed notoriety at the moment. Their eyes were heavy with black and their cheeks impudently scarlet. The hall was lit by great white lights, low down, which emphasized the shadows on the faces. All the lines seemed to harden under it, and the colors were most crude. It was a sordid scene. Philip leaned over the rail, staring down, and he ceased to hear the music. They danced furiously. They danced round the room, slowly, talking very little, with all their attention given to the dance. The room was hot, and their faces shone with sweat. It seemed to Philip that they had thrown off the guard which people wear on their expression, the homage to convention, and he saw them now as they really were. In that moment of abandon, they were strangely animal. Some were foxy and some were wolf-like, and others had the long, foolish face of sheep. Their skins were sallow from the unhealthy life they led and the poor food they ate. Their features were blunted by mean interests, and their little eyes were shifty and cunning. There was nothing of nobility in their bearing, and you felt that for all of them 
Life was a long succession of petty concerns and sordid thoughts. The air was heavy with the musty smell of humanity. But they danced furiously as though impelled by some strange power within them, and it seemed to Philip that they were driven forward by a rage for enjoyment. They were seeking desperately to escape from a world of horror. The desire for pleasure, which Kronstrasse said was the only motive for human action, urged them blindly on, and the very vehemence of the desire seemed to rob it of all pleasure. They were hurried on by a great wind helplessly. They knew not why and they knew not whither. Fate seemed to tower above them, and they danced as though everlasting darkness were beneath their feet. Their silence was vaguely alarming. It was as if life terrified them and robbed them of power of speech so that the shriek which was in their hearts died in their throats. Their eyes were haggard and grim, and notwithstanding the beastly lust that disfigured them and the meanness of their faces and the cruelty, notwithstanding the stupidness which was worst of all, the anguish of those fixed eyes made all that crowd terrible and pathetic. Philip loathed them, and yet his heart ached with the infinite pity which filled him. He took his coat from the cloakroom and went out into the bitter coldness of the night. End of segment four.